Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Freddie. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we analyse the reshuffle and you ask us, is not giving pay rises to striking workers a false economy? So lots of civil servants will be changing their email signatures and letterheads as we speak today because we've had a reshuffle of both ministers and Whitehall departments this week. So I'll just run through the main changes. Greg Hands replaces Nadim Zahawi, who was sacked as Conservative Party chair. Lucy Fraser is Culture, Media and Sports Secretary. So that department has lost its digital duties and she's left her post as Housing Minister. That means we'll have had six Housing Ministers in 12 months. Grant Chaps has gone from being Business Secretary to heading a new department for Energy Security and Net Zero. Kemi Badenoch goes from International Trade to being Secretary of State at a new Business and Trade Department, which merges Bayes and DIT. Michelle Donnellan moves from being culture secretary to head the new science, innovation and technology department. And plus, perhaps one of the appointments that's been discussed the most, Lee Anderson has been promoted to deputy chair of the party. Rachel, you wrote a snap analysis of this reshuffle. What did you make of it? Westminster seems to have been left wondering what is the point of this reshuffle? I think the main driver of it seems to be that Rishi Sunak had to replace Nadim Zahawi and he was forced into that position. So there's there's a political aspect to it there. And I think at the same time, he's tried to have a bit of a refresh of his premiership by switching around some of the machinery of government to try and bring that more in line with his own political priorities. I think Lee Anderson's kind of the most interesting political appointment. I think one of the main reasons for him putting him in that deputy chairman position is he was an MP that was being targeted quite heavily by the Bring Back Boris Brigade. So that kind of solves the problem for him. But I think when you look at how he's already starting to campaign, he's already in trouble for, I think it's, was it this morning or last night, saying, I think we should bring back the death penalty. And he's obviously brought in as some kind of like red wall Rottweiler, as I think he's touting himself. But I think it's a bit insulting to red wall voters and I'm not quite sure how long he's going to last in that position. But I think from Rishi Sinek's perspective, it seems to be one way of balancing the ticket, having Greg Hands, who's I think it's Chelsea and Fulham, Mm. London, Remainer. um, And then you have Lee Anderson as his deputy. But I don't think Lee Anderson's appointment is without risk for Labour. I think that there there are ways in which Lee Anderson start to paint Labour as a bit of a middle class party that's not in touch on certain issues like immigration, some of the culture wars stuff. But they don't seem to be terribly worried about him and think that he's, he would be actually be quite easy to, to goad into saying some pretty outrageous stuff and getting himself into trouble with his own prime minister. Well, I suppose you do need someone fighty in CCHQ. Arguably, these positions, the chair and deputy chair of the party, are probably the most important appointments in terms of what the 
party's priority is going to be. I think particularly when you you go into the local elections, sorry, yeah. Yeah, and the local elections, of course, yeah. But these new departments do seem to reflect what Rishi Sunak's priorities are. It's interesting, I think, Freddie, that usually usually the lobby and sort of the general Westminster commentariat come up with a with come up with a narrative for reshuffles, don't they? Whether it's outward the pale, male and stale, or a unity cabinet, or the rise of the Brexiteers, there hasn't really been the ability to do that. And does that mean this is not really political? It's just Sunak choosing what, how he thinks Whitehall should be structured. Yeah, I think in many ways it wasn't as much about the personnel. It was a lot about the departments in terms of the politics. I think Rishi did say last summer during the leadership contest that he did want to set up a department for energy. So that's one of the commitments that he made, and he's now delivered on that. I think it is worth noting that reshuffles of departments themselves rather than just the people who lead them can be very disruptive. We've got to look back at the merger of the FCO, the Foreign Office and the International Development Department. That has been very messy. You've got different IT systems trying to come together. Admittedly, they did do it during the pandemic, which made things harder, but these things can have a real impact on department's ability to deliver. So the question, therefore, is why is he 18 months out of an election? Is he going to be able to see the benefits of this reshuffle or reorganisation before the next election, it seems quite unlikely. So therefore, the next question is, why has he done it from the political sense or even from the government sense? What does he want to achieve? I'm not really sure. It, as Rachel said, it's. I think lots of people were sort of wondering, what is the purpose of this? If it isn't about managing your cabinet because the actual personnel moves have been quite minimal and you've only got 18 months than what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, and it's interesting what you say about how it does cause a lot of disruption. Even in the FCO now, FCDO, of course, after the merger, you speak to civil servants there and they still very much feel like they haven't integrated. So you know the people who are DFID people and you know the people who are FCO people and never the two shall work together. Yeah, morale's Um, been really bad. I mean, the civil servants have had such a bad past nine months because we've had such turnover of ministers anyway just to do with the state of the Conservative Party and that's been very demoralising I think for many and also made it very difficult for them to actually do their jobs because ministers need to make decisions and when you have a new one come in you often get reviews of decisions they look back at the previous decisions and maybe take a different direction and that ultimately detracts from what the civil servants are trying to do. Yes, and it can be very frustrating and people do leave, don't they? The Institute for Government's just brought out its sort of Whitehall review and it shows that one of the main problems at the moment in the civil service is churn. Yeah, indeed, yeah. And I think it's also worth noting that sort of this big switch around of Whitehall is also quite expensive. I think the Lib Dems put an analysis out straight away, which was like it's going to cost something like 60 million and you could also pay for a lot of free school meals with that kind of money. God bless the Lib Dems. God bless the Lib Dems. Number crunches there. there. Just waiting for a Whitehall reshuffle. And their and the, uh, kind of fag packet maths, which <laughs> just often come in handy. But yeah, this is also going to be expensive. And as, as I think Freddie Wright, you pointed out there, there's not that much time before the next general election. So why didn't you focus on delivery rather than switching round Whitehall, really? But there's a benefit from a Labour perspective in that kind of it makes Ed Miliband's job very safe because it brings some of the government machinery into line with how the front bench was already set up. So you've got what I think will be a really interesting contest in Parliament between Ed Miliband and Grant Shapps, who are both very experienced MPs, both know what they're doing, have lots of contacts, are very good with the media, and I think that'll just be 
a very entertaining look yeah. around, actually. I thought that was really interesting because usually it's the opposition that have to follow the government structure, but they seem to have done it the other way around, at least with the net zero position. <laughs> and it wasn't without risk re- reshuffling these departments, but he did duck some of the trickier decisions, didn't he? I mean, the Home Office is probably the department that's been most in the spotlight for not working properly. Its remit is huge and that's been exposed by much of what's been happening in immigration, the visa schemes, etc. He didn't decide to break up its duties. He also didn't create a ministry for housing, which is something that a lot of people in the housing sector have been calling for, considering it's one of the big policy areas. And he ducked the request from the Northern Research Group of MPs to have a minister for the North, which he actually did promise to do in that summer leadership campaign. I know that he's said that those pledges don't stand, but still, that's something politically risky within his own party. Yeah, and he's left Dominic Raab there as well. So he didn't preempt the potential decision to sack him if the investigation that's currently going on is sufficiently damning. We, we, do, we must say we don't know that he's going to do that regardless of what the report says, that there is a feeling amongst some MPs that the accusations at the moment as they stand isn't sufficient to get rid of him. But let's wait and see what the investigation says. So, but if it is really bad, then he's got to get rid of his Secretary of State for Justice and replace him, which could precipitate another reshuffle, which just puts him back in square one and makes you ask the question, why didn't you do this? I think the answer is because the investigation isn't done. But then maybe he could have waited with this reshuffle until that investigation was finished, so we knew. So again, I think he's set up a problem for himself in the future that he could have dealt with now. Yeah, I would agree with most of that. It made no sense to come to the table and try and sort a load of problems while the most headline-grabbing one is Dominic Raab and you could sort that when, you know, the report arrives and there's no immediate reason why you had to replace your chairman when you have a lot of deputy chairs that could have stood in the meantime so I don't I couldn't understand why he's picked now necessarily unless they just think they'd lost a lot of ground with the strikes during January and December and thought we need a bit of a an immediate reset and something to get us back on the front page talking about the things we think are important. But it's noticeable that it wasn't done with some massive speech or huge announcement. It was done through press releases and then Cabinet met slightly later that day. They could have made a much bigger message about energy, about science, about technology, about the new priorities of the government. Moving beyond those five things that he set out in the New Year's, this could have been a great opportunity to say that we're not just trying to fix the NHS and fix the channel crisis, we're also looking at the next 10 years, we're trying to build a new future. But he didn't take that opportunity. Well, it's that long-term view that I thought might have a part to play in this because of course it's going to be difficult if Labour do get in as the polls suggest they may get in the next election to unpick any of these moves. I mean David Lammy has already said that he wouldn't split FCDO again because like you say it is expensive and disruptive so in a way perhaps Sunak's laying his legacy it's a very unexciting legacy but one that could potentially make yeah. government work better some of these changes do make sense so some of them do yeah I think but then again you had looking at the Department for Climate Change that was something that is bringing back what Gordon Brown had in place <laughs> it's a reverse so of a re- reverse. You know, so, yeah. so some of it's just a reverse of reverse as you say the other thing to note is that the changing the names of these departments doesn't necessarily mean that the government's priorities are going to change it still be probably the same civil servants, the same sort of people doing the same thing. It's not as if science or net zero or technology are new ideas. You can change the title at the top, but it doesn't necessarily, it could do, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get a government that's much more focused on these things. Good to say that you'd mentioned that the government hadn't done any speeches to lay this out, but then you had Jeremy Hunt talking about the new Silicon Valley, talking about all these tech jobs. I think it's just that some of these things, because the government's in so much trouble, have fallen a bit Below what the red what, what was our headline for that piece? <laughs> I think it was Jeremy Hunt says nothing. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Because there's no huge amount of content in them, but it's not like they're not trailed, that these are priorities from. It's just not getting the same kind of traction as it might have done if, yeah, and if the polls were perhaps about- closer. 
Silicon Valley speaks about the past 10 years, not the next, I think, as well. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You, you Ask, Ask Us. Us. Our question today is from Scott. He asks, have any economists looked at the cost of strikes to the economy in terms of revenue lost and compared that to the cost of actually giving pay rises early and avoiding strikes? So this is an interesting maths question here. I actually asked the Centre for Economics and Business Research to calculate the direct impact to UK businesses' output of lost working days up until this point, taking in all the strikes that we've had in the recent period. And they very kindly crunched the numbers for us. Thank you so much, guys. And they came up with a total of just over £1.6 billion. Now, obviously, that doesn't account for the knock-on losses to other industries. So, for example, pubs losing out because of the rail strikes or retailers because of postal strikes or jobs parents are working in if they have to stay home from school during the teacher strikes. So we don't have those figures. But the independent did calculate those figures up until January. So this was before the February strikes and came up with 5.2 billion. So I think we can say 7 billion is a conservative estimate. And then in terms of how much it would cost to give workers pay rises, the IFS calculated that if you're taking the inflation rate at 10%, it would cost 18 billion. But then the government would get about a third of that back through the higher taxes, because when you put people's wages up, then they have to pay more tax. So yes, the cost of these pay rises would be higher than the impact that we've had on the economy so far. But this is a bit of back, back of the fag packet kind of math. So it's not necessarily completely scientific. Where are the um, Lib Dems when you need them? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where are you guys? Right in. <laughs> but of course, the fact that the pay rises haven't been given means the strikes will carry on and they'll have a further impact on the economy. So is it a false economy, I think is essentially what Scott is asking, Rachel. It's hard to say because you don't know quite how long they're going to go on. So you don't know what the overall cost is going to be. And then I think there's, there's, like you say, some of the knock-on stuff, which is almost impossible to yeah. quantify. For example, if someone doesn't take their driving test because the examiners are on yes, strike, exactly, then yeah. what if they don't get a job and then they're out of work for six months? So there's a wider question. Yeah. I think the rail minister, Hugh Merriman, before a committee a couple of weeks ago, kind of admitted it would overall be cheaper to have settled some of the train strikes than it would be to, right. to continue on going. And then just beyond that, there's like the political cost. There's quite a lot of conservatives at the minute who are really keen for 
for Rishi Sunak to start settling some of the strikes because they think it's a real drag on their pull and that any kind of reset, as he's been trying to do, is pretty much impossible while while the disrup- disruption is ongoing. There's quite a few different elements to it, most of which is quite difficult to quantify, I think. Yeah, the costs of strikes is a super interesting question. I think, that first of all, you've got to recognise that workers don't get paid when they go on strikes. It's a massive cost to them. Yeah. And then in terms of the railway companies, a railway strike, which is one of the biggest over the past year, the government actually compensates the railway companies for the cost of strikes. So it isn't actually very costly for the railway companies themselves, which is one of the reasons that the negotiations haven't worked like a normal negotiation, because the government are basically picking up the bill. And that only, as you spoke about, Anoush adds the cost to the government. And then also, of course, you've got the cost of the economy. On the political point, I think that's really interesting, Rachel. I remember speaking to one cabinet minister last summer or last spring as we were seeing these strikes come over the horizon, and they were quite excited about how difficult it would be for Labour. They said it would make Labour look very London-centric and out of touch because they thought only people in London get public transport. And <laughs> it was a very strange conversation. <laughs> and, well, I'm so, glad you've immortalised it on this did this guy represent? I can't tell you. <laughs> but that's not come to pass. And I think you're right. You are seeing a change in tone amongst MPs and they are recognising that the longer this goes on, it does feed the narrative that the government is presiding over a dysfunctional country and they are failing to to properly fund public services. It's interesting that you talk about last spring because that was when Labour politicians were privately saying, oh, I'm a bit concerned about how the strikes are going to affect us politically. We've got to walk this very difficult line. And you had Keir Starmer warning his shadow cabinet not to go on the picket lines and all of these things happening. But actually, how it's turned out is, I think, you know, there was this wait for the public to become so fatigued by the strikes that they'd start blaming the strikers, the union leaders, Labour, That's not quite how it's happened. Okay, some public opinion has been damper for certain industries than others. The public seems a little bit more divided on the teachers' strike, for example, than it does on the NHS strikes. But there's still a majority support there. And ultimately, as Ben Walker often tells us, even if they're not keen on on the strikes going ahead, the people that they blame are the government, it's not Labour. I think that's right. And I think what kind of the Conservatives haven't calculated at all is that it's having quite a good impact on internal Labour politics. So you have a lot of (laughs) trade unions who might otherwise be calling for different things from the Labour Party who are really industrially focused. So that's kind of working well for Labour also. I wonder how many Conservatives actually are surprised by the trade union legislation that they brought in that just hasn't had the wedge issue impact that they thought it it might have had. I, I can't see that it's had that it's been able to flam up anything with the public, I think because of just the longer term erosion to pay that people have seen happen to most people that they know, actually. So I don't think that it's going to snap back in a way that that anyone would be surprised by at this point. Yeah, I think the problem for the government is that this isn't just a normal industrial dispute. This is a collection, a series of strikes across the economy in many sectors, which represents a failure over the past 13 years for people to get proper pay rises. And that's only coming to the fore now because we've got inflation. It doesn't mean that people have been paid well for 12 years or yeah. you know, had had their salaries go up. It's just the pain that people are experiencing now and the numbers that they're seeing in their bills and on their pay packets are so bad that they've taken the drastic action that they have. So I think the broader story is that it is an indictment of the government more generally and that's why they can't escape it. And of course we had Zelensky visiting Parliament this week as well and we discussed that on the latest episode of our sister podcast World Review which is all about global affairs. So have a listen to that latest episode. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me Anusha Kellyan and my colleagues Rachel Wearmouth and Freddie Haywood. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil licensed under Creative Commons. 
don't forget to subscribe and follow and leave us a nice review. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.